Awaken Indie folks. This is uh, episode 20. It's going to be a good one. I'm excited because when I was in Tennessee earlier in the year, I was at a biodynamic farming conference out there. I was fortunate enough to meet some really cool people. And um, one of the guys, Steve, if you're listening to this, it's a pleasure meeting you, man. He's from Tennessee, but originally from the UK. And he's a fellow podcaster. And we were chatting about if you produce 20 episodes for a podcast, you're actually in the top 1% of all podcasts. So we made it. We can stop now, right? <laughs> no, it's um, it's been fun doing this, and it's been my pleasure to get to meet so many cool people here in Indiana. And if you guys have been listening, if you've been sending me messages, been sharing the podcast, you know, I appreciate all you guys. It's It's been, I can't really express it, more encouraging than ever just to hear from friends and family and viewers about their thoughts on the episodes. And so, we want to keep it going and we want to keep supporting as much as we can. So thank you all. And this episode, I wanted to make it special on purpose. It being the 20th one. And if you listened to earlier, you heard Rick's episode and he was just a couple episodes ago and we're having him on again because I think episode 20 should be, I think one of the most important things that we talk about. And given today's climate, it's highly controversial. You know, immunity over the past two years has meant so much to so many different people. And that's what today's episode is all about, is about our immune system, some of the misconceptions, and some alternative viewpoints. And so what I have to say before going into today's episode is that Rick and I, we're not trying to decide things for you. We're just simply trying to present things that we've found from our own research from you know, Rick more than I, our, our years talking to lots of different folks and seeing benefits and seeing results in practice, giving these modalities and these viewpoints to clients. And so it's thanks to them, it's thanks to those conversations that we're able to have this information. And so go into this with an open mind, you know, be curious, not judgmental. And I remember as a kid being shamed by friends because of my viewpoint and my approach to healthcare. And looking back on that now, you know, that that didn't feel great. And that was really hard to take from friends that were telling me I was part of the problem. And I never want anyone to feel like that. And I think we live in a, a time where so much of our healthcare can't be decided based on like one person or on like one approach, like body autonomy is so important. We should be able to make our own choices for our own health. And, you know, what helps Larry might not help Sally and what Larry's doing might debilitate Sally. So we can't say that, you know, Larry is right and Sally's wrong and she should, you know, meld to the curve and adapt. We should incorporate Sally's viewpoint into the way that healthcare works rather than shaming her. And so I think, that's what's called for. What's needed is that we have practitioners who are open to discussion. And so I hope everyone enjoys. I hope this helps a lot of people. When I started hearing about this stuff, it helped me out quite a bit. I want to hear questions and feedback on this. So please email us podcast at georgetownmarket.com. I'd love to discuss more with people and hear their stories and their viewpoints on this. And let's get right into it. Rick Monteith, everyone. 
go. This is an exciting episode because we've never had anyone on for a second appearance, Rick. So this is going to be the first time for that. So welcome back to the show. Thanks, Aaron. Glad to be here. Yeah. And I think I'm also excited because today we're going to talk about things that people might not know about at first, and they might be a little, I think, adverse to when they hear it for the first time. Sure. I know some of these things I were, I was too, I should say. Um, and it took me a little bit to grasp it, but you know, the more I kind of pondered it and let it roll around in my head a little bit, the more I was like, wow, this kind of kind of makes sense. Right. So right. I'm excited for you to share this, and you've done a lot of research into this area, so I can't think of anyone better to do it with. Thank you. Yeah. It'll be fun. It will be, yeah. So I think starting off, we lived through two years of a lot of different viewpoints on the pandemic and um, what illness, what health, what immunity was. And we have this germ theory that I think is mostly presented in the media, but there's other things like terrain theory. And so for listeners, could you break down what both of those things are um, and maybe even just the history about how both of those uh, viewpoints got developed? Sure. So yeah, we'll discuss the germ theory versus the terrain theory. And basically, the germ theory is pretty easy to describe as that germs cause illness or disease. And we're talking about, when I say germs, I mean bacteria and viruses primarily. Uh, for example, you catch a cold or a flu bug or pneumonia or the coronavirus. You know, those are examples of catching something, a bug. And the belief is that germs are contagious. Uh, Louis Pasteur, you might recognize the name Pasteur from the term pasteurization, where you sterilize everything. Yep. Yeah. So uh, he took credit uh, for being the father of the germ theory. And this is back in, I think, around the 1850s, I believe. And he believed that a healthy human body was sterile and became sick only when invaded by the bacteria. And we now know that the digestive tract of a healthy person contains up to six pounds of bacteria. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And that protects us against toxins. So we now know that we have healthy bacteria. And if the germ theory, according to Pasteur, was true, there would not be a human alive today. Yep. <laughs> it's pretty basic as far as the impact of the germ theory. So then we have the terrain theory, and this was first discussed by a French scientist in the 1850s. His name was Antoine Béchamp, that's B-E-C-H-A-M-P, and his belief was that toxins or poisons resulted in illness. And the terrain theory says that illness is uh, simply a detoxification process. Uh, germs are scavengers of dead and waste tissue, and that these germs or bacteria can even change shape and type. I think the term is what, pleomorphism? Correct, yes. Describe that, yeah. So instead of believing that a symptom such as a fever is a result of a germ, but it's actually the natural mechanism of the body to eliminate toxins as part of the healing process. Now, I admit the train theory can be a difficult concept for the average person to understand. Yeah. I think I first heard about it maybe about 10 years ago. I can't remember exactly when. And at the time, I was thinking, I've never heard of terrain theory. 
and uh, I always thought that germs cause disease or illness. I mean, that's, I think everyone thinks that way. And, and today, it's still the case, but there's much, much more discussion now on the terrain theory, which I think is great. Um, so a real basic illustration of the terrain theory that I like to use is a goldfish in a fish tank. And um, you know, the, the fish appears to be sick. So the question is, the goldfish, is it infected by a germ? Or is it the water in the tank that became toxic or poisoned? So do you treat the goldfish or do you change the water? So I think we know now that uh, you change the water so that you're changing the terrain of the fish tank and you clean up the fish tank and the fish is okay. Uh, another example I like to use is the, is the condition called scurvy. Uh, for a long time it was believed that the sailors on ships were getting sick because of an infection of a germ. And I mean many years they thought that scurvy was due to uh, an infection of some type. Uh, but it took years, but it was determined to be a nutritional deficiency. And that when sailors were given limes or citrus, they were okay. They regained their health. Mm -hmm. Another good example is the nutritional deficiency called pellagra, which is a B vitamin deficiency. And the same thing for years, it was thought to be a contagious germ that was causing the symptoms. And when I say for years, I, from what I read, it, it took like 50 to 60 years. Jeez. <laughs> Hard to believe it took that long to figure out it wasn't an infection or a germ causing it. It was a, you know, simply a nutritional deficiency. But what is really unfortunate, I think, and very frustrating is that despite all the scientific evidence of the terrain theory, the germ theory has prevailed today mainly because of the pharmaceutical industry uh, various government agencies who are convincing the population that germs are the cause of illness. And that's the foundation of, uh, of prescribing drugs that treat symptoms when the science shows that symptoms are a result of the body trying to eliminate toxins or poisons. So you have, you have big pharma, you have doctors, you have hospitals, you have the FDA, you have the CDC, all these huge entities, corporations that are built on the belief that germs are the cause of illness. And I think later on we should talk about what the consequences uh, have been from dealing with, in the last three years, uh, dealing with this germ theory thought. Um, to me it's mind-blowing that all the consequences of the germ theory and the catastrophic results the world has had to deal with all because of a false theory. Yep. Yeah, I think it's whenever you build a belief system on a shaky foundation, um, it sets you up for failure. And Pasteur to me is a shaky foundation. He um, liked to steal a lot of different scientific theories from other people, like Bichamp, for example. Um, and he was known to be a fraud in that area. And he wasn't a scientist. He wasn't a doctor. He didn't have the same credentials as people like Bishop did. And a lot of times he would do experiments trying to prove, oh, well, you know, this pathogen is causing this illness. But to actually get it to work, he would combine things like arsenic with the pathogen and get the result. Right. Because um, if you can't make it work, might, why not fib it, right? <laughs> sure. Um, convenient, right? Yeah. And so 
the current system that we come up with nowadays is based on that germ theory. And I think we got to think about going back to things like German microscopy. And there's a, a great podcast if people want to learn more about what we're talking about called Alpha Vedic. And there's a doctor on the show named Dr. Berlando, and he talks about through his own research in German microscopy, finding things like protids, um, which has been known for a while underneath the microscope, and how those things that they've labeled protids turn into what we find as bacteria, viruses, fungi, and the terrain is what influences that expression. Um, and I know for me, like that was hard to like grasp the first time after going through like physiology in college and a bunch of different mm -hmm. classes. And it's like, yeah. oh, you know, you drink spoiled milk, you'd get sick, right? Or something That's, like that. Yeah, botulism or whatever it might be, right? Yeah, but then you think about it, it's like you get exposed to lots of things all the time and you process them. And maybe it's the terrain of the milk that got changed that then caused different things to grow inside of it. Exactly. So maybe there's not just these magical boogeymen out there when to get <laughs> us. And there can be some things like germs in the air if the terrain allows mm. for it and their expression. Um, but if we're taking care of ourselves, we don't really have to be so scared, I feel like, personally. Right. But if someone looked underneath the microscope, they might find other things besides those protids that I mentioned. And that might be exosomes. And so I'm curious, Rick, what are exosomes? And can you tell us a little bit more? Sure. So uh, the term viruses, uh, they were first identified in about 1930, 1931. And that was with the invention of the electron microscope were they able to see under a high-powered microscope very, very small microorganisms. And what we call today viruses, they're about a thousand times smaller than bacteria. We're talking small here. Yep. Know, really, really, really small. We're you know, virtually hard to see. Uh, so they are very, very small. And again, viruses are dead bacteria is alive so that's another thing to keep in, in, in mind so the question is if viruses are not the cause of illness according to the terrain theory maybe there's something else and there's a popular belief among scientists uh, more recently is that viruses are actually exosomes that's e-x-o-s-o-m-e-s -E and they're kind of described as as uh, toxin gobbling messengers that are packages of DNA or RNA uh, that our cells produce to clean up and get rid of dead and diseased tissues. And when I first learned about exosomes, it was from Dr. Tom Cowan. Uh, that was in March of 2020 when the pandemic was getting going. And I learned that the description of an exosome is virtually identical to the common description of a virus, which I found very, uh, very interesting. So the, and these tiny exosomes, they're our messengers. They actually help us adapt internally to environmental changes. And I wrote a blog article uh, for our store newsletter on exosomes in June of 2020. And I said, viruses and exosomes are indistinguishable. And I recommended that readers uh, go watch a YouTube video that explained exosomes really well. Guess what happened to the video? Oh, I wonder. <laughs> it's no longer around. Yep. <laughs> it's gone. Good old censorship. Yeah, good timing. Yeah. Anyway, it's important to know that a, a well-functioning immune system 
and good gut health, good gut health microbiome, they do not allow microbes to cause illness. And after all, if we have more exosomes, bacteria, fungus, and other microbes in us, then we do cells. And that, that really surprised me, you know, hearing that we have more of these microorganisms, whatever you want to call them, and we have cells. I mean, to me, that was pretty dramatic, too. Now, you may have heard of uh, Bruce Lipton, you know, Bruce? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And one thing he said that really stuck with me is that we are walking Petri dishes with skin. Yep. You know, we, we have bacteria. We have different biomes. We have biomes on our skin. And just a number of micro – people think of the gut. There's much more to it than just that. And I thought the description of we're just a walking Petri dishes with skin was, was pretty interesting and, and very accurate, too. Definitely. Yeah. And this explains in every pandemic or epidemic why some people have no symptoms, some have minor symptoms, some people have very severe symptoms, and yes, some people do die. Uh, but your symptoms are not a result of disease, but of your body attempting to rid toxins and poisons. Yep. And I know it's a hard concept for most to wrap their head around, but I just want people to be open-minded and be aware that there may be other ex other explanations for how we get sick. Uh, there is good evidence that germs don't cause disease and that germs are created by the body to clean up dead tissue and basically carry out the garbage from our body. Yeah. Well, with a lot of these, when we get sick, I think we do have that fear, like, oh, no, I'm going to feel bad. But really, it's like your body being willing to go through a detox and if we look at like cold and flu season, I don't think it's a coincidence that it comes around the same time that we have the holidays where sure. most people eat things like lots of sugar, mm -hmm. for example. And so if we shift that terrain, we're going to have it over an expression of maybe different things like staph, you know, bacteria and stuff. Um, and we will get sick, but our body will clear it up. Um, but certain things feed pathogens, and we can think about things like maybe, like I mentioned, iron, or sugar being one, but right. iron. Right. If you follow the work of Molly <clears throat> Robbins, which we mentioned before on the other episode, could be another one that pathogens feed off of. Um, but there's numerous other things, and I also find it interesting how we give antibiotics, and if we are a Petri dish, if you clear off all the good bacteria and we make a clean slate, if bad bacteria mount a stance in that open petri dish, that's going to create disease. Right. So we don't want to destroy the good stuff in us. No. You know, we want to promote the good stuff, the good bacteria. And if we're mostly made out of these other things that aren't us, that aren't our own cells, it's probably not those things that are the problem. Um, and I even find it interesting, too, with all the mask mandates that went on, we have these viruses that are really, really, really small, supposedly. Mm -hmm. um, they would get through a lot of mass because <laughs> they're really small. Very small, yeah. And so when you think about things that feed pathogens, besides maybe like I mentioned the antibiotics um, that clean the slate and sugar, what might be some other things that you think of that influence pathogen expression? Well, it has to for me. It has to do with with hygiene and and diet as far as what we're eating. Um, I mean, pathogens are described as they're they're bacteria. 
that are basically they're, they're considered bad bacteria. So we all have bad bacteria. We also have good bacteria. So I always tell my customers, the good guys need to outweigh the bad guys. Yes. That's the important part. And if you're doing antibiotics like you described, the job of the antibiotics is to kill the bad bacteria, but it takes the good bacteria with it. Yep. So one option is to, if you feel you must do an antibiotic, and there's probably life-threatening situations that call for an antibiotic. Sure. That you should follow up with probiotics mm -hmm. to replenish the gut with the good bacteria so the good guys will outnumber the bad guys. Yes. But it's really important to have that our, a healthy microbiome. We need to be eating properly, and I'm sure we'll get more into that later on as far as the, the causes of the terrain, of what upsets the terrain theory. Mm -hmm. But you know, clean water and eating healthy, and uh, there's other factors too, but uh, basically for me, it's mainly watching what you're eating and what you're drinking and not feed these bad bacteria or pathogens. Definitely. And I think I've had a lot of people tell me like, hey, after I took a round of antibiotics, I got really depressed. And that's because, you know, we have a lot of serotonin that's produced from our gut, yeah. for example. And so, you know, there are instances, and we're not trying to like, you know, bash allopathic medicine or current medical right. establishments. There are times and places where, you know, yeah, you got to take care of something that's a really bad bacterial overgrowth. Maybe you do need to take an antibiotic. Right. And I've seen that happen with some people. And um, knowing the time and place, I think that's an important thing. Time, place, and setting is a really important thing with this. Um, but with this viewpoint, with terrain theory being something that we follow for this conversation, I wonder, like, do diseases and viruses actually exist? Because if we have a clean terrain and we're protected in a way, is illness really going to come about? Uh, that's a great question as far as do viruses really exist? And people will say, well, of course they exist. You know, that's all we hear about are various viruses besides the coronavirus. you got the cold virus, the flu virus, and other types. And I know it's very it's controversial. And personally, I believe that viruses don't exist mm -hmm. and a, that a virus has never been properly identified or proven to exist now, I mentioned Tom Cowan before he did a video like I said in March of 2020 um, that went viral that he did like a 10 minute video and, and it went viral I saw it I thought it was an eye opener for me and he talked about using Coke's postulates and that's k-o-c-h uh, Koch was a, a german uh, scientist and he wanted to create a gold standard to identify a possible virus or a micro uh, microorganism so I'll, I'll just kind of describe real quickly the, the Koch's postulates according to what uh, tom cowan described so you have a person that's uh, not feeling well they're ill and they have certain symptoms so the first step is to collect liquid fluids from uh, from their nose or mouth uh, I'm not sure if you can get it from the lungs or not but you're, you're collecting a liquid fluid and your your next job is to isolate and purify it to make sure there are no other toxins or no other bacteria or animal tissue present you need to have it pure because if you don't purify it the problem is that it could be those toxins that are resulting in symptoms so we want to make sure you have a very clean culture 
collected. And then you want to introduce this, this pure culture to a healthy person who has no symptoms. And the assumption is the healthy person would become sick. They would display the same or similar symptoms as the first person that got sick. And then the final step is to re-isolate from the now diseased person and identify it as I, and make sure it's identical to the original causative agent. So what I like about the Koch's postulates is that you're creating a gold standard, so you're comparing what you think may be a virus, and you want to be able to compare it from the person that is sick, that it is the same virus that was collected originally. So that part makes sense to me, but no one's doing it though. Yeah, that's like the the shocking part that you have scientists and they're not following. You know, I've heard scientists say, "Well, that's that's just outdated. We don't do that anymore." And even back in when Koch's postulates came out, there's a guy named Rivers, and he he created Rivers postulates, and he just mm. cut off Koch's first step because he couldn't make it work, so he just crossed off the first part um, of the Koch's, and there were still problems with. Um, uh, with the rivers postulates. Uh, so then the question then became, does anybody actually possess this isolated and purified virus uh, using Koch's postulates or even rivers postulates? So that, that's what I was wondering about. So does anybody actually have this virus? Well, I'm referring to the coronavirus right now. Mm -hmm. SARS-CoV-2 is what we're talking about. And I read about a lady, her name is Christine Massey, and she had the same question. So she contacted over 140 agencies, hospitals, uh, scientists, researchers, including the CDC, the FDA, John Hopkins, and she even contacted entities in Europe, and she used the Freedom of Information Act to find out from all these entities if they possessed this isolated virus and not a single one said they had it. Wow. Nobody had the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And I know at one time I read that CDC on their website, they actually stated that they, they did not have the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So it turns out that, so it turns out uh, all anybody has is a computer-generated graphic of what they think this virus might look like. Yeah. So they don't have the actual virus. They have a computer-generated graphic. And they, I mean, I've seen pictures of the virus, and they're just making this stuff up. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but they're just making it up. And I don't want to diminish uh, those that got sick or those that have died in the pandemic. It's clear that many people uh, got sick, many died. But I think there's plenty of evidence that a contagion was probably not the cause. I agree, and I'm not a virologist or a, you know, someone that works in a lab, so I can't attest to how some of these machines run or how some of the tests are created, but I've heard things like how the test is spun or run um, and how they collect. It can, no matter how many times you run it, like you could create your own virus, basically, if you wanted to, from different parts. And so if you put them all together, of course you're going to find a virus, but you're not, like, 
just finding something that's out there. You're right. creating it right. um, based on how you spin the machine. And so it's, like like you said, artificially created. And all these images that we have, mm-hmm. you know, that's not, like, found. And even things like when we find um, bacteria, viruses, other things under a microscope and maybe dead blood, that's different than what's found in, like, a live blood. A blood. Absolutely. And so what we're presenting, I think it's kind of what was known at one point and maybe because we followed certain ideologies down a rabbit hole we have the current medical system that kind of is missing some pieces and rather than like trying to like oh we need advanced antibiotics we need to advance all these other areas of medicine maybe we need to go back and clean up some of the ideas that were presented dismissed um, because there might be another reason that things are popping up and the current viewpoints aren't satisfying all of those, let's say, postulates that we were just talking right. about. Right, exactly. And so, you know, you kind of talked about how virus testing might not be great. Is there any recommendations or viewpoints on current COVID tests, if they're actually valid? Or, you know, I've seen people who test watermelons, <laughs> they come back positive. <laughs> uh, have you heard things like that as well? Oh, sure. Yeah. yeah. yeah no, and I... I have to admit, I love this question. I love the this topic of testing for the viruses. Yeah, I don't know why, but just it just just the fact that we may not even have a virus, and now we're talking about a test. That think of all the people who have taken COVID tests, mm-hmm. you know, PCR tests, which we'll get into here more. So, you know, there has to be a gold standard that identifies the virus, and then a test that can accurately show that you have the same virus that this gold standard uh, says exists. So uh, I just think that nobody has proven that they've ever actually truly isolated and purified a virus. Yes. Which me to me means that the obvious answer is there, there's no test that's going to actually uh, test for a virus or in this case for the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to test for a pathogen or a microbe, you need a test, like I said, based on a gold standard. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's assume that the germ theory is valid and that there is a coronavirus. So if you want an accurate test that properly identifies a virus, you need the actual virus to compare what it's tested for. So if nobody has the actual virus, which we have just talked about, then how can a test accurately detect a virus or a variant? And we, all we hear now are about variants. So, you know, to me, is if there's no, vi- if there's no virus, there can't be a variant. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you can't even prove you have a virus, there can't be a variation of that virus that doesn't exist. Uh, so let's talk about the, uh, the PCR test, which is the gold standard of testing. Yeah. So once again, Tom Cowan... Uh, did a great job of, of explaining the PCR test, and, and this was invented in the 1980s by a scientist named Kerry Mullis. Uh, he even won a Nobel Prize for his invention, uh, the PCR test. But, you know, this is, this is great. That Kerry said that this test is not to be used to diagnose a virus. <laughs> so here you have the scientist, the guy that invents it, and says, no, you can't diagnose a virus with my PCR test. Well, it turns out that uh, some guy named Anthony Fauci, 
he decided in the early 1990s to use the PCR test to identify the HIV virus. I mean, Fauci was around back then. You know, he was, uh, became quite active with the HIV scene. And Fauci ignored what uh, Kerry Mull said about the P PCR test. And he even declined to debate Mullis. Mullis wanted to debate him in public to show to him that what you're wanting to do with the PCR test is not valid. Uh, and you can find videos, well, maybe you can't now, but at one point, and I've seen a number of videos of, of Kerry Mullis from the early 1990s talking about the, uh, the misuse of his PCR test. Uh, he said if a test is used incorrectly, that it is easy to, to achieve a positive test result by simply increasing the amplification cycles of the PCR test above, I think, around 35 amp, uh, amplifications. And I'll, I'll just mention what's really interesting is that Kerry Mullis died in August of 2019. How convenient. Yep. Three months before all this stuff. Yeah, I'm not saying anything. <laughs> no. He died of pneumonia. Yeah, yeah. Which, which I found very interesting too. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So it turns out that there there were no set standards on how to use the PCR test for this current pandemic, which to me it was very surprising. And I had some employees early on that they're they're going to get a PCR test, and I said, well, just ask them how many times they're going to amplify it. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they got, they had no idea what they're talking about. They're like, what do you mean amplification? They're just giving you the test, you know. Yeah. Um, so they, they didn't even have that information available. Uh, and then I read that the CDC and other health agencies, um, they recommended an amplification of 40 or higher. So here they're wanting more cycles. And, of course, what does that do? It gives you much more, you know, higher rate of positivity. Mm-hmm people thinking that they have COVID, the coronavirus. And then the day that uh, Joe Biden took office in January 2021, the CDC came out and said that the amplification should be set to 32 or lower. <laughs> so what does that do? Of course, that lowers your number of positive test results. We're trying to make it look like, oh, things are, are going the right direction. I just thought it was ironic that on the day that he took office that they came out and said the test should be lower cycle rates. Yeah. Which I thought was, again, very interesting. So to me, the PCR test is, is meaningless. It's not accurate. It's been a vast burden on society. And then the, the more current type, not the PCR, but the, the COVID home test, um, again to me is is totally inaccurate it's not valid if you read the fine print i mean it, i just shake my head when, when you read the fine print of the older way all their outs of of the test not being accurate and, and it's in, it's there in the fine print but again the home test to me is is not a, an accurate way of determining if a person has this so-called virus so you have no proof that a virus exists and you have a PCR test that was never designed to diagnose a virus, and you have a nightmare due to the consequences. And, and just think of the consequences we've had to deal with. We've had masks, we had social distancing, we've had asymptomatic carriers, that was a favorite of mine, 
Mm-hmm. You know, you're a carrier. You have no symptoms, but you're a carrier of this of this virus. Yeah. Uh, we had lockdowns. We had mandates. We had uh, loss of businesses, loss of jobs. You have suicides. You had an experimental injection that they called a vaccine. And most likely we're probably going to see digital passports, you know, coming in, digital vaccine passports coming in down the road. Um, so I just don't think that we've had, not only do we know, don't have evidence of an actual virus, but we don't have a quality way of testing people for this so-called virus. It's a lot right there. It's a lot for yeah, people I know. to comprehend, but from what I've done in my own research, I feel like you're right about everything you said. And I think people who listen to this might like right off the bat, like, Oh, the two conspiracy theorists sitting down at a table, <laughs> having a conversation. <clears throat> That's right. Um, but I also think of like, maybe it's like two people that have looked into other things that aren't just presented on, you know, Fox and, you know, CNN and all your different things. And there's a reason that, you don't know about people like the Champ that we mentioned earlier because okay. we, we have suppression of certain people. Absolutely. And I think people would make different choices if we had full knowledge of everything. And that's kind of what's not fair nowadays is that we have information presented, but it's not the truth. Like, it's not the full truth. Um, it's, you know, it's presented in a different light. And so I always found it interesting that I'd be, like, going to a social gathering and everyone would be like, well, you know... You might need a test for, you know, COVID before you come to make sure no one gets sick. And I'm thinking in my head, if you don't feel good, don't you just not go out? <laughs> sure. Pretend you have the flu. If you're sick, you don't go out. Yeah. You, know, you don't go uh, out in public and just use common sense. But it's it's changed people's way of thinking, which has been very interesting mm-hmm. from a psychological mass humanity standpoint that it's – it's been very interesting to see how people just accept in the information that they're given. And I just think it's important that we be open-minded, think out of the box, and try to find our own resources and not just accept that whatever the government or a doctor or, or whoever tells us may or may not be the case. Yeah, I think sometimes the convenient truth that's presented can be the most dangerous and um i agree with that open mind is a big thing nowadays we live in a time of like cancel culture where if i don't like what you're gonna say i'm just gonna cancel you that's right um but i think if we just like just with a lot of these ideas just entertain them just like let them roll around and you don't have to make up your mind about germ or terrain theory today just think about it over time and see if it relates to what you experience in your own life um, but given all this, you know, testing the existence of pathogens, I think we also need to touch on things about how we actually keep a strong terrain and build up that strong immune system. And so I got a couple that I'd like to recommend, but Rick, I'm curious, like, do you have any favorites that you recommend um, to people or that you have used yourself to kind of keep a healthy immune system throughout the year? Yes, um, there's a number of factors that uh, that are involved in keeping your your terrain healthy. Um, you know, for me, the the primary uh, approach is eating a clean, whole food, plant based uh, diet. You know, eating whole foods, not processed foods, not junk foods. Uh, drinking clean water. Uh, 
removing any, any heavy metals or toxins from the tissues. Um, there are some chelating substances that people may be familiar with to reverse tissue damage, such as zeolite, shilajit, mm-hmm. uh, uh, trace minerals are beneficial. Charcoal can help uh, pull toxins from the tissue. Uh, I know in our last podcast, we talked about hydrogen, mm-hmm. molecular hydrogen. And I know it's also very beneficial in balancing the terrain. Um, I just think it's, it's very important to address all the factors. We just can't pick one and ignore others. We kind of look at the bigger picture and, uh, and consider what you can do. I know that mushrooms can help uh, balance and, and support the terrain. Uh, eating fermented foods such as sauerkraut, for example, supports very healthy bacteria. Uh, and I'm sure uh, you have some favorites, too, for building, you know, supporting the, t- the terrain, too, Aaron. Yeah. And I have to say, uh, after we finish recording this, I'm going to have my first hydrogen session. I'm going to go drink some hydrogen water. And All right. I'll have to report back to tell listeners okay. how I feel. Um, and it should be an interesting experiment. And I like a lot of those recommendations, things like shilajit, which I add. Um, I make a lot of times mineral cocktails. Good. Um, Morley Robbins like to call them adrenal cocktails. Right. Um, and I do throw a little shilajit in those mixes myself. And um, if you want something that you feel right away, that's something that you'll feel right away when you get minerals in your body. Mm-hmm. Um, and minerals are a great way to bind to things like heavy metals and help them detoxify. Right, exactly. So I like that recommendation. Um, you mentioned mushrooms, and there's a lot of different ones that you can pick from. The one that I started with was reishi, and it's a nice one because you can take it as a capsule, as a tincture, and it's medicinal. It has things like dientritropines that come out really great in a tincture, mm-hmm. um, and that's like how I've liked to take it in the past. But I've had things like immunity just get a lot stronger where I notice I don't get sick quite as often. Um, it has a strong affinity for a liver. You think about that bitter taste that Rishi has. Oh, yeah. Um, really great for that, as well as it seems to have also a calming effect on our system. And um, I have another favorite, cod liver oil. Uh, Good. They seem to import, back in the day, I think this is over in Europe, they imported um, hard cheeses. Um, they made a wartime bread that had actually the whole grains in it and cod liver oil. And the incidence of female mortality went down quite a bit right um so cod liver oil is really high in active vitamin a which is retinol retinol. Um, and it does have vitamin d and you know i think when we were going through the pandemic it's like vitamin d vitamin d vitamin d right and unfortunately even in like just how the medical system has made some claims that are false i think on the alternative side we've been very very pro vitamin d and we can have too much it's a hormone um, if we have too much, it can make our cells more susceptible to things like reactive oxygen species. So just like everything, you know, the dosage is the key. And, you know, getting it through liver oil or natural sunlight seems to be, to me, the best ways to improve your vitamin D status and not needing to take things like 5,000 or 10,000 IUs every day. Right. Um, so this winter, you know, definitely double down maybe on some sunlight if you can and cod liver oil mm-hmm. um, and see if that can in fact help so talk about viruses talk about the train talk about things to keep the train strong um, but i'd like to also touch on some things that disrupt the train that people 
may or may not associate with that disruption. And I know electricity is a big thing that you've mentioned um, and like to talk about, but then also maybe things like EMF. So if someone's like, oh, I love my cell phone, I can't get separated from my cell phone, um, or I seem to get really like a lot of migraines when I walk into um, hot spots or if I'm around these towers that are being installed in my neighborhood, right. what would you say to those people? Well, the there's a, a definite you know, from what I've read, the correlation of being introduced to new electrical uh, advents, be it electricity or EMFs, uh, microwaves. Uh, It turns out that there's good evidence that there's a correlation of introducing these various forms of electricity and illness resulting from the introduction of these uh, electrifications, if you will. Uh, there was a scientist named Heinrich Schweik, sounds German to me, yeah. <laughs> 1836, and he stated that all physiological processes produce electricity, which I hadn't heard of or thought about before. Hmm. And he claimed that the accumulation of electricity in the body causes the symptoms of Influenza. That was interesting. Okay. So with the introduction, if you go back to the introduction of the telegraph lines, that was in 1875 in that time period, there was a new disease that they called neurasthenia, which I'd never heard of before, which was very similar to modern-day chronic fatigue syndrome. Hmm. And it spread along the routes of railroads and telegraph lines. How convenient, huh? Interesting. And you go up uh, from from there, 1889, which was the beginning of the electrical area. Of the, if you go back to 1889, that was the start of the electrical era, and there was a deadly flu epidemic from 1889 to 1894. So there's a correlation of new electricity introduced and a deadly flu epidemic followed it shortly after. And then in World War I, they did a vast installation of antennas. And what we have with World War I, we have the Spanish flu in 1918. And even though many, many people died from the Spanish flu, many experts came out later and saying that it was not due to a contagion. Everyone thought it was due to a virus. You know, talking about millions of people supposedly died, which yeah. I'm not sure how accurate that is, but people, I think, blame it on a flu bug. But when scientists went back to try to prove that it was a virus, and they tried multiple times, they tried infecting healthy volunteers, they were actually taking sick people and coughing on the faces of healthy people, which I thought's pretty dramatic, you know? <laughs> Nothing like coughing on someone's face. Yeah, I'll pass on that experiment. But they, they could not, they couldn't reproduce, they couldn't get people sick. Yeah. You know, they had healthy, healthy people being coughed on or exposed to sick people, and they tried multiple times. They even tried it with horses <laughs> without success. So another example after that was in 1957 when they introduced radar. And what happened shortly after that, the Asian flu, right after it took place. You go into uh, 1968, 
There were 28 satellites who were launched into space, and the Hong Kong flu followed right afterwards. Hmm. There's another example of electrification of the Earth. Then you have cell phone service started in 1996, and we, and we began seeing sensitivities to uh, EMF and Wi-Fi signals. And uh, I found it interesting that in September of 2019, they turned on 5G, which is much, much stronger than the 4G network. They turned that on in Wuhan, China. And three months later, what happened? We had the early cases of the coronavirus being reported. Uh, then they had illnesses uh, has followed other 5G installations in all major cities in America. Uh, in northern Italy, they had the densest 5G coverage, and they had 22 times the cases of coronavirus as Rome did. And what's also interesting, that countries with no 5G reported virtually no cases of the coronavirus. So why is that? That's I found that very interesting. So whenever we have these electrical envelopes of the earth, you know, these sudden disturbances which affect the electrical circuits in the human body, um, which they, some people call dirty electricity. What I th found interesting is that each cell in the body has its own electrical grid mm. that's maintained by structured water mm. inside the cell membranes. Yep. And we've also found that cancer has also increased with each new development of uh, the electrification of the earth. I think if people were listening, they're like, well, you know, all these theories, they're kind of out there. Coincidences? Yeah, there you go, coincidences. Sure. Um, they're, you know, they're really out there. And how could we have such a, a worldwide illness? I think you just got it. Like, we rolled out 5G. And that's something that happened worldwide. And so if you're looking for causative factors, like we got to consider all these different inputs. We can't just say, hey, it's this one thing possibly. Right. Um, and so there's a lot of influences and we are electrical beings. Exactly. Um, and I love that you brought up water because there's so many people that just drink things like tap water or they'll go to Costco or, you know, Walmart. And I see like the plastic water bottles. Lauren's talked about this on the show, like seeing the plastic water bottles baking in the sun and to think about drinking that, like it just sounds like like a swimming pool of like not a good idea. All the horrible things. <laughs> um, so you know, getting clean water, whether that's distilled or RO water or spring water, if you're lucky enough to live near a natural source, um, and having things like minerals added back into it, and if you really want to get fancy, like vortexing it, which <laughs> can be a little bit out there, but even if you put like a copper wire around your water or stir it in certain patterns, that can vortex it you're creating like a living entity. And, right. you know, Gerald Pollock has talked about there's a fourth phase of water. Mm -hmm. It can store emotions and memories. And it's, you know, very influential um, upon, like you said, the cells, the cytoplasm. And there's a lot of strong research that shows the cytoplasmic disruption of cells correlated with a lot of different conditions like cancer, for example. Yeah, Tom Cowan in his book talks about that. Exactly. The exact same thing. And so if someone's like, how do I really influence something that every single day of my life I'm exposed to clean water is like key right. and I'd be interested to see even like with this hydrogen water like having that and structural water as a combination what that will do for people's health I agree so with 
we just talked about, you know, electromagnetism and EMF being rolled out and that may be correlating to symptoms and conditions. There's got to be things, some things out there that can protect us from EMF. And I've done some research into things like copper necklaces, and I personally wear copper necklaces when mm-hmm. I go out. Um, I make sure that I put my phone on airplane mode right. so that I'm not blasting my crotch with you know frequencies <laughs> all the time i'd like to have kids one day sure good um but there's other things like i've heard lambs clothing for example is a company that protects you um but what are some ones that you've heard about yourself well one that i've uh have known about for quite some time is, is grounding mm-hmm. where you can walk barefoot on the earth but there i just heard about and recently purchased a few weeks ago uh grounding bed sheets and pillowcases so you're and they're embedded with silver in the sheets and you're plugging the grounding sheet into the electrical port you're not plugging it into the outlet you're you're it's it's going into that third little hole of the electrical outlet they call it a prong i guess Mm -hmm. so you're plugging into that and you're connecting your bed sheet and your pillowcases that connects to the port so you're you're grounding your bed sheet so you're sleeping you're you're sleeping six seven eight hours a day so it's really important a great time to be grounded and all the health benefits of grounding i think are really impressive so that's one that 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 my wife and i are personally doing uh you may have heard of uh faraday cages that Mm -hmm. can protect emf devices uh you can even you know when you're people building houses or painting emf protection by either paint or more broad range house protection that's another option too um you know like just like you said putting your phone in airplane mode is a really simple thing that we can do it's just remembering to do it's the hard part Mm -hmm. that's for sure even uh, doing massages can help protect yourself right even handshakes and hugs (laughs) can also help kind of ground or protect ourselves against emf and and crystals we talked about uh, the shungite and there's other crystals i think that provide some uh, emf protection so there are some options Uh, i have a device that i put on the back of my cell phone that i bought i don't know three or four years ago from somebody that supposedly did tests that show that it reduced emf exposure to it i'm taking their word for it i don't know (laughs) i hope it does so there are some options out there available to us i like that yeah and i like the grounding because it's getting hard now that where it's getting colder outside but even just going and putting your bare feet on the ground right like try to be in a bad mood doing that like it just feels good absolutely yeah Um, just being outside so i definitely recommend people check that out and copper necklaces those are easy to get um so you know i think with a lot of this like people say oh how can you be sensitive to emf there's enough companies out there doing research and sharing this that there's a lot of people that get affected by it and even if you think you're one of those people that hey you know i'm not one of those people that's sensitive like if you get migraines when you walk into certain buildings or are around certain areas you might be sensitive and you might not even know it um, it's hard, like we've been talking about, it's hard to separate out symptoms from the cause of things. And you have to really be a detective nowadays to get to the bottom line. I agree. And so 
I think we've wrapped up a lot of different things um, and given people a lot of resources to check in on. And I would say when you're going about maybe doing your own research, because I think when you hear a podcast episode like this, it's good to stimulate your own research because I'm going to admit like there's some things about like what I've said today I might be wrong about. And fact checking me is a great thing. And doing your own research, I think, is the best thing that anyone can ever do because it inspires them in their own health pursuits. Um, but I would say when you look at things like just know that we've had suppression of alternative means like Royal Rife, which is someone that we've talked about before, you know, the AMA destroyed a lot of his work. And I wonder how far along we would be if we didn't have that happen. They destroyed all of his work. Oh, yeah. My understanding is there is no original Rife machine that exists that, that I think they've tried to replicate or duplicate something close to it. Mm-hmm. But from my understanding is that they destroyed his equipment completely. Yeah. All we have left is just knowing his name, basically. Yeah. Um, but the positive is that we have people doing cool research today. Like we've named, mentioned people like George Wiseman. We mentioned Joe Pollock. Um and if you want to like see a succession of people that have done research that have, have influenced these thoughts, um, you can look at people like we mentioned. Bishop is one. Um, there's Gaston Naissance. Um, Gunther Enderline is another one. And so look these people up. See what they were talking about and just be open to these different ideas. Um, so kind of wrapping up here, Rick, last time you were on the show, I asked you for your top recommendations for you know, health, but got to change it up now. So I'm curious, what are your top three resources or books or recommendations that people look into if they want to maybe like dig a little bit deeper? Sure. So yeah, the top three, uh, that I did myself, I mean, I I mentioned his name before Tom Cowan. I really like his work. He has a book called the contagion myth. And I think that is an exceptional book. He's really good at explaining, most of the topics we've talked about, and he wrote the book because of the current uh, coronavirus pandemic. So I like uh, his work. Uh, if you want to learn about the history of the germ theory, I recommend there's a book by Ethel Hume titled Bechamp or Pasteur. Uh, that's a good book that gives you the, the history, which I found fascinating also. And then the book that Amanda Vollmer, that we've talked about before, she recommends a book titled What Really Makes You Ill by uh, Lester and Parker. And it's over 700 pages. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Could, could be a doorstop at some point. But yep. it's, it's a big, thick book. But again, it's filled with interesting information. Yeah, that's a great topic. You know, what really makes us sick? Um, and, and the information that Amanda puts out, I think, is really good in general. You know, if you want to learn about the terrain theory, she's really a big advocate of the terrain theory. Uh, she has a channel on Telegram, and uh, she also has uh, was a Yummy Dot Doctor mm-hmm. and Yum Naturals. I think those are her two sources that I highly recommend. Amanda Bulmer is one of my favorite ones because yeah, she um, she's out in Canada. And she's doing a lot of cool research and making her own products and right. helping a lot of people. Um, she's a naturopath. She is. No longer does she have her license, so she's free to do whatever she wants to now. Yes. Doesn't have to report to anybody. Which is a good thing if you're going to be in the medical profession. Yeah. Um, so I'm I'm excited to hear some of the feedback from people on this episode. Remember, 
guys, we want to hear back from you through questions, comments. Remember, you can submit questions to the show and have them answered, and um, we'll get to them. And, you know, I think this is a, an important episode for a lot of people to hear. Um, when Rick and I were talking about doing this, you know, I was chomping at the bits <laughs> to share it because, um, you know, I wish I had known this stuff growing up and not have to unlearn now um, sure. some of the things that I've had to. And, you know, I wonder where the world would be at if we all were presented with this information. So I, I agree. You know, Rick, thanks for sharing today and for being on the show again. My pleasure. Thanks, Aaron. See you guys next time. Peace. There's a lot there. There's a lot to unpack, and there may even be some conflicting opinions on what Rick and I discussed today. But again, for listeners, I would encourage you guys to be curious and come at this with an open mind. Rick and I would be happy to answer any questions that may come up. Feel free to email us at podcast at georgetownmarket.com, or better yet, stop into the store and have a conversation with us. I think, you know, the more I jump into this area of research, the more I almost feel like this is my life's purpose. And I hope this falls into the right hands for those that may need it. I also feel like through my conversations with numerous clients and individuals that with the current medical system, we're seeing the acute suppressed, but the chronic expressed. And we've traded that short-term protection for long-term illness. So I think rather than pushing more and more and more on modalities that don't fit everyone, maybe we should go back and see that some of the misguided nature in our current medical system needs to be rectified and find a way to come at this with a more open mind and an open heart. So again, I look forward to people's feedback on this one. And as you guys travel into the holiday season, be safe. Lots of prayers with you guys from the Georgetown Market family here, from Rick and I, and we'll see you guys next time. Peace.